Hi, I'm Sean Murray and this is The Conversation, where we take an alternative look at political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. On this show, we hope to pick, probe, investigate and uncover the stories that you want to hear. We go where mainstream won't go. This week, we look at concerns around police corruption and media freedom. Our special guest is an award-winning journalist who's been at the centre of recent controversy regarding clandestine efforts by both the police and security services in attempts to access his confidential sources. But before we do, let's get a rundown on what seems to be a recurring theme within policing institutions. In 2014, Theresa May, the then British Home Secretary, commissioned a public inquiry into allegations that undercover police officers had spied on the family of Stephen Lawrence during their campaign to compel police to investigate the racist murder of their son. May called the revelations profoundly shocking and disturbing. Retired Judge Sir John Mitting was appointed to examine the conduct of officers who'd spied on more than 1,000 political groups between 1968 and at least 2010. In June, Mitting's first report was published arising out of the inquiry's work and what has now become known as the Spy Cop Scandal. It also followed revelations that undercover officers were regularly involved in long-term sexual relationships with women during this time. At least four of the undercover officers are known or alleged to have fathered children with women they met during their work. In July this year, more revelations have been uncovered, this time with the Police Service of Northern Ireland, the PSNI, into allegations that they had obtained the authorisation to access telephone records of journalist Barry McCaffrey after he approached the PSNI's press office in 2013 with questions for a story he was working on about alleged corruption in the police force. McCaffrey was later arrested along with fellow journalist Trevor Burney after a documentary they were both involved in exploring the role of police collusion into the deaths of six civilians in Loughan Island in 1994 uncovered a cover-up into the killings. These latest allegations once again shine a spotlight into a police force that has been at the centre of a number of controversies since it was reformed and renamed following the Patent Inquiry's recommendations in 2001. As always, we are joined by our resident co-presenter, Michelle Gildenew. Michelle is the current MP for Fermanagh South Tyrone. She has served in the Northern Ireland Assembly as a former Minister for Agriculture and Rural Development and chairperson of the Health Committee, amongst other things. Michelle has been a Sinn Féin activist since her teens and has been elected almost continuously since 1998. And today's special guest is award-winning journalist Barry McCaffrey. Many of our viewers might remember Barry from the film No Stone Unturned, an explosive expose that shone the spotlight on British state collusion in the massacre of six civilians who were watching the Republic of Ireland play Italy at the World Cup in June 1994. Instead of Barry's investigative work imploring the police to examine the findings and prosecute the suspects, he and fellow journalist Trevor Burney became the focus of police attention. This led to both men being arrested in August 2018, only to be later vindicated and awarded damages. Barry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Firstly, Barry, how did you become a journalist? Uh, just by, by chance, Sean. You know, uh, I had work experience at school. Uh, uh, ended up was lucky enough to end up in the Irish News. You know, that was 1985. Uh, you know, computers hadn't come in then. It was you know, still typewriters and tipex and uh, things like that. Then you know, it's during some uh, summer holidays, I would have uh, 
volunteered for you know, the the Irish Times. It used to be in Phantom House in Belfast, and uh, ended up working on building sites in Jersey in the late eighties and early nineties. And uh, eventually came home, was doing a, a you know a, a night class just for the you know the headspace to do something and. Somebody uh, ended up saying that they were, you know, uh, going to to do a journalist course, and I, I just followed them. Uh, so it was just just always by chance, you know. Barry, um, we're going to talk a wee bit about your work on the film No Stone Unturned, but before we do that, we're going to have a wee look at the trailer for the Brilliant. film. The World Cup Finals. I'd say the biggest day in Irish international soccer history. Slaughter in Lochin Island as loyalist terrorists shoot 11 people in the back as they watch the World Cup on television. And I just remember Mum was saying to us that bad men had come into the pub and they'd shot six people and, and Daddy was dead. Did you see anything? No. The getaway car was discovered the morning after the attack. There was just a sense that something wasn't right. Somebody somewhere helped these people cover this up. We were thwarted all the time. Every question we asked, we were told, we can't tell you that, that's national security. They were absolutely ruthless. I'll never forget their words. We will leave no stone unturned. And those words ring in my ear to this day because I don't think they ever left a stone. Never mind turned it. So I was briefed to go down to Belfast and interview several people. What was unusual is that I was told who I could speak to, who I couldn't speak to, what they would be saying, but just as importantly, what they wouldn't be saying. Certainly the bigger picture was there was this gang in operation and they were involved in serious criminality. Obviously there was things going on above my head. The paper trail will lead to the British government and they cannot allow that to happen. The police were saying the car was destroyed. I thought, hold on, the largest physical exhibit in the case and you've destroyed it? Ten years with no information, we were kept in the dark. They knew all along about the dirty war. You're taking me into an area that I don't, I don't really want to go to. I can't take the risk. If I can hit somebody early enough and there's a weak one amongst this team, they might start tumbling. How come they didn't do it? Good question. I really do believe it goes as far up to the right to the top. It still gets me every time, Barry, every time I see a trailer or a piece of the film or, or the film itself, you know, just what the families went through, the victims went through, and, you know, the, the events that evening were horrendous, but the events leading from that and the way the police didn't investigate still leaves you with more questions and answers, doesn't it? Oh yes, yeah. Uh, especially for the families, you know, nearly 30 years later, they they still, uh, the only answers they've got is they, they found them out themselves, you know, and they've, they've had to drag the, the RUC and the PSNI, you know, kicking and screaming in, in the courts uh, to try and get any truth uh, whatsoever. And, you know, that, uh, that quest, that challenge still still goes on, you know, the PSNI seem to be more interested in protecting, you know, the man who they say was the killer, uh, rather than giving the families justice. Mm -hmm. 
And t tell us just a bit more about the film. How did you become involved in, in, in the film itself? What 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 had uh, happened? Well, it, it it went back to so for for the first ten years uh, from ninety four uh, to two thousand and five, the family kept a dignified silence. They they didn't do in, uh, any media. They didn't. Uh, speak at all because the police had told them leave it with us you know we will leave no stone unturned you know uh, and they put their trust in, in in the police which you would do in you know if you lived in Dublin or London uh, or Glasgow you, you know you trust it's supposed to be a police service service somebody who serves the public protects the public so like every decent person the, the, the families believe that you know the police were their, were their best uh, option. And then in, in 2005, they realised that, that they'd been told lies for 10 years. And uh, through Niall Murphy, uh, their, their solicitor, uh, they agreed to speak for the first time. Uh, and they did that uh, through myself uh, with the Irish News. Uh, and Niall and the families uh, had tried to do documentaries with the BBC, but the BBC had told them that they weren't interested in legacy cases uh, anymore. Uh, and it was it was just a chance meeting between Trevor and Niall and myself. Uh, and Trevor said, well, why don't we do something? That because we were naming the killers or the, the people who the PSNI said carried out the, uh, the murders, we were uh, concerned that, that we would be injuncted and the, you know their identities or the, uh, the role that they played uh, would never be exposed. So incredibly, Barry, after all that had been exposed and what had been seen uh, uh, within the film uh, and the expectations that would have been there, you were arrested along with Trevor Burney? Yes, uh, Trevor and my, myself uh, were arrested on the 31st of August uh, 2018. Uh, to go back when when the, when the film premiered, uh, we expected a reaction from from the PSNI. Uh, probably naively, we expected the PSNI to say, uh, "Right, we 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 look at the allegations in this film, and you know we'll reopen the investigation, and uh, if we find that that they are true, you know uh, we you know we'll go after the killers." Uh, and if, if it's not, we, you know, we'll, we, the filmmakers will be discredited. Uh, and, but instead, what they did was they, they, they did say that they would reopen the investigation, uh, but it was to find out who our sources were. Uh, and that was, you know, that, that was uh, a scary moment or you started to realize, this is this is a bit strange. What you're sorry, you're not going uh, after the killers anymore. You're you know you're shooting the messenger, uh, and that was so. That led on for for a year, and uh, you know we we had our concerns about what would happen, uh, but we never thought that uh, that would we would be arrested. The the, the normal tried and uh, tested. Uh, method that that the relationship between the police uh, and any police force and journalists or filmmakers uh, if the police believe you have uh, information that they believe you know could it could help solve a crime or whatever uh, they go to court and they look for a production order from a judge uh, and they go into court and the journalists or the filmmakers go into court and you argue 
the issue out in front of a judge and a judge decides. Uh, and that's the way it, it should have been. That's the way anywhere else in the world that it happens. But that's not the way it happens here. So on uh, the 31st of August, 2018, 7 a.m. So I, I look down the stairs and I see this blue boiler suit, uh, this figure in a blue boiler suit, you know, at, at the front door. And at, at, it's at that stage you, you, you think, right, that's either one or two people. That's either the UVF or the, the, the killer coming to shoot us or it's it's the police. And you, you have a decision to make at that stage, you know, do, do you run back in and hide underneath the bed, you know? Or, uh, you know, do you let them put the door in? Or what, what do you do? So I decided, you know, I, I'd just go down the stairs and sort of front it out, wh whatever it was, you know? Uh, and I was sort of delighted when it was a, when it was a cop at the door, you know? It felt like hugging him. We arrive at Musgrave Street Police Station and there's two levels to Musgrave Street. There's the... The ground level was for the shoplifters and, you know, somebody got drunk and made a fool of themselves or whatever. And then the second level, the penthouse, that's the anti-terror suite, that's the Bin Laden suite. And I was hoping we were going down into the shoplifters, but no, we, we ended up going up in the lift. And then you're stripped uh, and you you've DNA taking your fingerprints and that. And uh, and all of that, and and then you're putting your you know your shoes are off, and you're you're putting the cell or whatever, uh, and then you have a wee cry to yourself, you know, you get in underneath the blanket, and you just you know you, all you want's your mummy, the uh, and then so and that went on, shocking at that stage to see the day where there the main prosecution witness against us was the man who they said who they say killed six people, uh, and that's how perverse. The, the PSNI, uh, the investigation was, they weren't trying to find, uh, you know, uh, they weren't trying to find justice for the Lockin Island families. Uh, they were using the killer against us to try and, you know, to try and shut us up. Mental, it just, it just illustrates very clearly how, how dysfunctional this place is, doesn't it? But. Mm -hmm. You've also then, Barry, because it, it just doesn't end there and the raid and the arrest and all the rest of it. You've recently been at the centre of a police spying scandal where the Investigative Powers Tribunal set up to investigate complaints against the intelligence services and public authorities have uncovered a further case going back to 2013. So we, we initially thought that it was going to be about Lockin Island. That's, you know, that's what we were really uh, interested in. Uh, but the IPT came back and said, no, no, uh, sorry, you were spied on actually five years earlier in 2013. Uh, and we're we're going to investigate this case or this uh, incident first before we get to Lockin Island. Uh, and it was only by cross-referencing the dates that we realised what the case was about, because they don't tell you they what uh, you know what these you know what you were being spied on, and it was only through sheer luck, sheer luck, that when I uh, cross-referenced the dates, I realised that actually what it was, it was a story that I was doing about police corruption. You're still tuned into the conversation, your weekly alternative probe of political events and current affairs around Ireland. I'm joined by my co-host Michelle Gildernew alongside our special guest, investigative journalist, 
Bonnie McCaffrey. Thank you, Sean. So obviously all of that is going to have an impact on public confidence in the, in the PSNI. Do you think that extends to academia or trade unions or other professions as well? I have no, no doubt that uh, what has happened to Trevor and myself, we're just the tip of the iceberg. The, we, we, have, we have met with a, a broad range of people from academia, NGOs, uh, and right across society. And what has been most alarming is that this, has ha this isn't a, a one-off. Uh, we have no doubt it's happening to journalists. They're spying not only on journalists, but uh, we, we met one person who was a member of the policing board, uh, who was a civilian member of the policing board, and they were able to tell us that uh, this, the exact same thing had happened to them. Uh, the chief constable needs to front up now and tell us, mm. well, you know, this isn't Stasi Germany. It's not supposed to be Stasi no. Germany. The, the, you know, a police service is supposed to serve the public. They're not supposed to spy on, especially people who are only doing their job. Journalists, you know, we are entrusted by society to hold government and government agencies to account. Journalism isn't a crime. Mm -hmm. And how damaging overall do you think this has been uh, to public confidence? I think this, this is just the, the latest in a long line of you know, self-inflicted mistakes that the PSNI have uh, committed on themselves. Uh, you know, what, how, how does society, why, how is society supposed to have confidence in policing when we, know, we now know that police are, why, you know, what have the PSNI to hide? Why, why are they spying on us? Why didn't they come out and say, sorry, there's an allegation of police corruption uh, and we're investigating it? Mm -hmm. Why did they, and why are they still trying to hide through these secret courts? Yeah, Barry, I suppose many of us grew up with police and army raids on our homes in the yes. 70s and 80s, but the ones post-Good Friday Agreement were nearly worse because it was a different, um, a, a, a different environment in which they were happening. But that raid on you and your family was a terrible ordeal. You know, what impact did it have? It's like a boomerang. It keeps on coming back, you know. So you have to, it's, you know, it, uh, I'd, you know I'd, I'd be very open about, uh, I, you know, have it, it, it challenges with mental health or whatever. Uh, so, you know, yeah, you have to talk to people. Uh, yeah, you have to cope with some, you know, some people just, you, you can compartmentalize it and, uh, you know, put it away. Uh, and it did, listen, it, it takes a heavy toll. And after all this happened, Murray, how do you view, I mean, do you still have confidence in the police? We have to bring this thing right to the very end to defend press freedom. Because if we don't fight it to the, to the last, you know, stretch, They'll do this again and again. We have to make sure that what they have done never happens again. Mm -hmm. Because if they're not, and the only way we can do that is if they are held to account. So they, they can't have these secret hearings and uh, you know closed door uh, hearings that w we don't get into, that our solicitors don't get into. The PSNI can tell whatever lies they want in there and nobody's there to challenge it because we're not allowed in. If we are going to restore confidence in policing, it has to be open and it has to be transparent. And the PSNI have to come out and say, sorry, we spied on 
you know, so many, whether it's journalists, NGOs, politicians, ordinary people in the street. You know, that's what the Stasi had to do. The files were opened. That's what, you know, so if the PSNI have files on, on every member in society that they shouldn't have, if they have been spying on the uh, people in society, well, let's open the files. It was good enough for Germany. It was good enough for South Africa. But the, the home of democracy, British democracy. If this is a, a democratic society, let's open the files. Because if they have done nothing wrong, they have nothing to fear of. That's, you know, that's the thing. Either they have done wrong or they haven't done wrong. And if they haven't done something wrong, let, let, let's have it open, open in court. Well, if we look at the example of the legacy legislation that's going through Westminster at the minute, the British government will find a way to, to keep um, those lies uncovered. Well, Pori, listen, I want to thank you for coming in again. It's always a pleasure to thank see you. Sean. Thank and, you, uh, We want to wish you all the best for the future. Thank you. Thank you. This week, we took our cameras to Dublin to have a look at the Moore Street campaign where a small number of activists have been challenging the Irish government to maintain the cultural integrity of an area described by the National Museum of Ireland as the most important site in modern Irish history. In April 1916, the course of Irish history changed forever. In a rebellion that witnessed hundreds of armed revolutionaries take on the might of the British Empire, a call for a national right to freedom and sovereignty was read out by one of the leaders of the Rising, Podrick Pierce, as he stood with an armed guard on the steps of the GPO in Dublin. After a number of days of pitched street battles and heavy bombardments by the British Army, a decision was made to evacuate what now had been the centre of the insurgency at the General Post Office in O'Connell Street. With the building now in flames, the remaining Republican defenders made their way to Five Moor Street and began tunnelling from house to house along the street. The following morning, one of the leaders, James Connolly, was wrapped in blankets and carried through the holes they forced in the walls to number 16. In a small room, Sean McGermotta, Podrick Pierce, Joseph Plunkett, James Connolly and Tom Clark discussed the limited options open to them, including rushing the British Army barricade on Parnell Street. Tom Clark, who went to look at the situation, returned to tell the leaders that it could not succeed. The leaders came to the reluctant conclusion that surrender was the only choice open to them to avoid further loss of life. Julia Grennan, Winifred Carney and Elizabeth O'Farrell had stayed throughout Easter week in the GPO. O'Farrell was now tasked with a dangerous responsibility, going to the British lines where General Lowe informed her that he would only accept unconditional surrender. A short time later, Podrick Pierce, accompanied by O'Farrell, and wearing his military coat and hat, left the Moor Street headquarters of the Provisional Government to meet General Lowe. The insurrection was now over. All signatories to the proclamation were later executed by the British government. 107 years later, and this historical and iconic battlefield area is under threat from corporate interests. Commercial plans have been drawn up to bulldoze one of Ireland's most important historical sites but not without a fight. The Moore Street Preservation Trust, led by the relatives of the signatories of the 1916 Proclamation of the Irish Republic, have been pressuring the Irish government to commit to preserve the site in order to instead develop the area into a 1916 cultural quarter in the heart of Dublin. 
Rather than witness the further gentrification of the capital city, the group aims to enrich and preserve the quarter, reflecting the aims and ideals of the men and women of 1916. US filmmaker Ron Maxwell describes it well. Battlefields are looking glasses into the world of our ancestors. Standing on their earth under the skies is to be at one with them and to viscerally understand humanity's connections across time. The generation that won independence lives in the ideas we honour, the architecture we preserve and the battlefields we can yet save. As it now stands, the future of one of Ireland's most iconic historical sites is in the balance. A decision by the planning board is imminent. What will the future hold? And that does it for another week. We'd love for you to join the conversation by sharing the link to today's programme across all our social media platforms. I'd like to thank our special guest, Barney McCaffrey, and my co-host, Michelle Gildenew. In the meantime, the conversation will be back next week with more investigations and analysis. I'm Sean Murray. Bye for now.